I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk Ukraine, solar, and globalization 2.0. The Trade Guys are coming at you right now. Guys, we're back. And of course, the war in Ukraine rages on. It's top of mind. Let's talk about it. The G7 has imposed new sanctions on Russia. What are some of these measures and what will it mean? Well, we're moving in the direction of effectively uh, an embargo. I mean, it's sort of step by step, okay? But uh, the U.S. has expanded export controls on Russia's access to wood, industrial engines, boilers, motors, bulldozers, among other things. Also, we are keeping our accountants away from the Russians. That's going to be a devastating blow for them. I think the big issue remains the one that we've talked about before, which is Are the Europeans going to stop buying oil and gas? Because that's been the financial engine that has kept the war going. And they're having troubles getting the Hungarians to agree to any kind of a phase out, it looks like. I'm depressed about that. Yeah, look, the sanctions cut both ways. So, for instance, Russia remains a major source of uranium. France gets a very large share of its electric power from nuclear and need uranium from somewhere. It's not exactly. something you have on the shelf, like next to the cornflakes. So there are some problems, certainly problems in hydrocarbons. And I would note that this is punishing in Europe. Uh, European living standards are going to decline. Everyday Europeans are going to feel it. Everyday Americans are feeling inflation now. Yeah, I was going to say our standards of living are declining. And and we're worried about gas. I mean, literally $95 to fill up my tank the other day. That's because you drive a gas-guzzling SUV, Andrew. I am not driving a gas-guzzling SUV, but I do need premium gas for my car, as you know, Bill. So, you know, that's the problem here. I had one of those once. It's expensive. It's really expensive. And someone was saying to me the other day that regular gas in California is $6 a gallon. Well, it's not that much far behind here if you're putting in premium gasoline in your car, it's $6 a gallon here, basically. Just be glad you're not buying diesel. Oh, there is no, and there is no diesel, right? More expensive than in short supply. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so so this, is, this is tough. And I, I would point out that while Russia is under pressure, the attempts to harm the Russian ruble appear to have failed. The Russian ruble is the best performing currency year to date in uh, 2022. How can that even be? Well, because I think the Russian government prepared for sanctions. Keep in mind, this is not new. 2014, the color revolution and the controversy over the Crimea, a lot of sanctions were applied then. That was sort of the test market. And they learned Yeah, they knew that. it was coming, didn't they? they well, they, they prepared for it. And it appears the preparations worked mostly because they're still selling a lot of oil and gas at relatively high prices versus a year ago. They acquired a lot of gold reserves and now are pricing the ruble in gold and petroleum. So therefore, it's a strong currency. What's really helping them is the fossil fuel prices. I mean, they're mm-hmm. exporting less yes, by quantity than they have before. But at higher value. Yeah, they're getting more per barrel. And so the result is they're taking in piles of money. Well, and here's the thing. Scott was talking at the beginning about how the Europeans are really suffering. Of course, we're suffering a bit here too with gas prices. 
I keep hearing it be said by energy experts that the world cannot survive without Russian oil. So we really have a problem. Well, that's true in the short term. And keep in mind that the, the oil and gas sector, at least in North America, has been subject to underinvestment for several years for a lot of reasons, mostly because of low prices. It's a classic commodity cycle that low prices bring on high prices, which ultimately, because of substitution and increased capital investment and production, high prices will lead to low prices eventually. That's why they call it a cycle. But we're at a bad spot in that particular commodity cycle. And at the moment, there's not a ready supply available to replace Russian oil. So the G7 countries who committed to phasing out or banning the use of Russian oil, and the White House reiterated the move that this is going to hit hard at the main artery of Putin's economy. That may be true, but the pain for us and the Europeans is going to continue to be significant, correct? Well, that's correct, but I would question whether it's actually true Russia will be hurt because oil is a global commodity. And while not everyone can sell to everyone else, there are other customers beyond the G7 for Russian oil. I think there'll be a difference in impact too. I don't see a big shortage problem here, medium or long term. Problem here will be price. Exactly what you were talking about earlier, Andrew. The Europeans face actual shortages, you know, yeah. uh, particularly on gas. If they stop buying or phase out or Putin stops selling gas to the Europeans, then they have a serious problem. And that's not one that is easy to overcome in the short run because you have to go to LNG, which means uh, you need more terminals uh, and you need more ships. And those things don't appear overnight. So, Bill, let me ask you this. The United States and others have also pursued measures not only to restrain Russia's war machine, but to try to bolster Ukraine's economy. What are some of these measures? Well, they're mostly symbolic. There's two. One is, I think, symbolic and one is substantive. The U.S. is uh, acting to remove the steel tariffs uh, on Ukraine, which will make the Ukrainians happy. Keep in mind, though, that, you know, our imports of Ukrainian steel last year were only 130,000 plus metric tons out of a total of nearly 30 million in imports. So not very much. It's not significant. And there's also the question of because of the Black Sea boycott that the Russians have engineered, whether the exports could even get out of the country anyway. So you're talking about the, the Black Sea blockade. Yes, right. The focus there has been on food, but I don't think the Russians are trying to interdict everything. So I don't think there's going to be much steel getting out. So it's a useful gesture. And I think what the Ukrainians are rapidly doing, particularly on food, is exploring uh, options to ship to the West uh, rather than through the Black Sea, meaning out through Poland and other countries in Europe. The preferred route, I guess, is Poland you know, to the North Sea and ports there. That has railway gauge issues, interestingly. Scott will remember this from the past. You know, one of the things the Russians did in the 19th century, and they did it deliberately, was to construct their railroads on a different gauge, a different width of track than the West. And they did it to deter invasion because the train would have to stop at the border because the German cars in particular, or the Polish cars, wouldn't fit on the Russian tracks. That's still true in many respects. There are solutions, but it slows everything down. The thing that the Europeans have done, though, that I think is more significant than the symbolism of steel is that they proposed a one-year suspension of import duties on all Ukrainian goods that are not already tariff-free. That's significant because it'll include a lot of fruits, vegetables, agricultural goods, which have the Europe, Europeans, the EU in the past has restricted either with quotas or, or tariffs. 
So that can be significant. A lot of those were due to be phased out by the end of this year anyway, but moving that up eight months will, I think, give a significant boost, particularly to Ukrainian agriculture. And it may help bring down food prices in Europe. So I think that's an important step. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Europe will have a bigger impact than the United States just because the volume of trade is larger. I think we're going to send aid packages. We might as well lift the tariffs. It's just another form of aid. So that's all fine. I agree with Bill that steel faces big logistic problems. In fact, there's this big bomb-proof steel mill in Marpool, I believe it is, that is about to fall into Russian hands. So they won't be executing anything from Ukraine for a while. Likewise, Bill's right about rail gauge problems, that there are big logistics difficulties with doing any of this. In addition, the Russians are targeting the rail system because they don't want the railways to be able to move missiles and armaments west in support of Ukraine's actions. So tough situation all around. What are some of the other things the U.S. can do from a trade perspective to help Ukraine? Well, Ukraine was a GSP recipient and GSP has expired. So you could basically do the same tariff-free treatment. We could lighten up on some of the tensions that we have raised with the Ukraine. I just noticed that Ukraine is still one of nine countries on the intellectual property special watch list. So we've got longstanding problems with Ukraine. We want to set those aside for now and look for ways to support the people. And freer trade generally does that, but in both directions. So I think there's work to be done, but I'd let the people closest to the needs and the closest to the issues identify those. Bill, what do you think about that? I was just going to say one of the mysteries here, and it's good that it's a mystery because I don't think we want it to be clear, is how our military equipment is getting to where it needs to go in the face, particularly of Russian efforts to interrupt supply chains. The United States is not talking about that. There was a statement by one of our military officials, I think, earlier this week that suggested that of the number of large howitzers that we promised to send them, I think it said all but like two or four are there. So that means they got there really quickly and they got in place really quickly. How they did it, I have no idea. And I think it's probably best that none of us have any idea. But it's a, that's right. It's a logistics triumph. And when the history of this is written later on, there will be a set of heroes, or unsung heroes or the people who figured out how to move all this stuff from here to there to the battlefield quickly. Just for the record, the trade guys, we do not know how the stuff is being transported. We, we know a lot more about avocados on the trade guys. Yeah, we'd like it that way too. Right? That's, right. That's right. We've prioritized our supply chains to reflect our personal interests. Yes. I don't need a howitzer in my backyard. Right. But we do need avocados, as we have so frequently discussed on this program. No question. Speaking of avocados, what's going on with the solar industry? We've discussed solar tariffs several times on the podcast. What makes this case that the Commerce Department is looking into right now different? Well, for the wonks, I have to do a commercial here. Emily Benson, my research fellow, and I just published a piece on this yesterday yep. that is sort of a point-counterpoint. Emily took the environmentalist position, and I took the trade law position, and we disagreed with each other. So if you want to get into the weeds of the thing, go to the website and get that. It's become this big cause, which is interesting, I think because it really is a classic example of where trade laws and trade policy bump up against other policies, in this case, climate policy. What has happened is that the Chinese were already subject to tariffs on their solar panels and modules because they were dumped or subsidized. We have rules against that. That's cheating. There's international rules against that. 
And the United States imposed tariffs uh, on Chinese panels, uh, I think, eight or 10 years ago because of that. But, you know, as people who follow this stuff closely know, do, imposing those kinds of duties is a little bit like push it on the balloon. You know, you squeeze one place, it pops out somewhere else. So over time, what happened is imports from China went down and imports from Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam went way up. And so one of the domestic manufacturers, somebody who makes solar panels here, filed a complaint alleging that Chinese were circumventing their tariffs by shipping the panels to another country and bringing them in here as, as a product of one of those four countries. That investigation has begun. What has happened is panic has ensued in the sense that the industry of people that install panels, which is much bigger in the United States than the industry of people that make panels, probably 10 to 12 times as many workers in installation as there are in manufacturing. They have imports have declined uh, dramatically. Projects are being stalled. There's a utility, I believe, in, in Indiana that announced it was going to continue to operate some coal-fired plants that it had planned to phase out because of this uncertainty about whether it will be able to switch to renewables. So the environmentalists, not to mention the installers, are very angry and said these tariffs are stopping the transition to renewables, they're stopping the transition to solar. And in the short run, they have a point. We did a study a long time ago when I was in the Hill about this that, that showed that generally what happens when a case like these cases get filed, there's an immediate decline in imports, largely because nobody knows what's going to happen. You know, are they going to be liable for bigger duties? Or are they not? So the answer is we're going to wait and see. In this case, waiting and seeing means waiting until August. It turns out, though, that once there's a decision from the Commerce Department, even if it's a decision to impose duties, imports tend to go back up at that point, simply because certainty has been restored to the marketplace. Maybe the Commerce finds 20% subsidy. Well, once you know that you're going to have to pay 20% more, then you can make adjustments. So some of this is going to go away when there's a Commerce decision, which will be, I think, August at, at the latest. It's a fairly tight time frame, but it has also aroused a lot of frustration in Congress, partly because, as I said, the installation industry has a lot more workers than uh, the manufacturers do. There are members of Congress that support the manufacturing industry. Senators Portman and Sherrod Brown in Ohio in particular have been active on this. Uh, people in the solar installation industry, particularly uh, farther west, have been very much on the other side. And they've been frustrated because this is one of those trade laws where there isn't any flexibility. You know, this is not a law that says the president can swoop in at the end and say, despite the merits, no tariffs. This is one where the Commerce Department conducts an investigation. If they find circumvention in this case, and if the ITC finds that the domestic manufacturers have been injured because of the circumvention, the tariffs are automatic. And Secretary Raimondo has been testifying on the Hill on a bunch of things. This has come up every time. And every time she says, we can't do anything about this. This is an investigation. There are career professionals that do this. They're going to come up with a decision. And then we're going to do our best to live with it. So it's, it's become controversial. Members of Congress are threatening to introduce legislation that would allow the duties not to be imposed, even if the finding is affirmative. I don't think that's going to go anywhere for a lot of reasons. The controversy is, is, is interesting. And, you know, both sides have a point. You know, the Chinese are cheating. 
Okay. Do we want to keep on letting them cheat because it's in the interest of enhancing renewable transition to let them cheat? Or do we want them to say the rules are the rules and we ought to obey the rules? There's even a bit of a dust up within the administration on, on this, isn't there? Between energy and commerce and the White House? Yes. Yeah, Secretary Granholm kind of threw Secretary Raimondo under the bus earlier this week. They're all up there. <laughs> on, you know, they're all up there testifying on their budgets. They're not up there specifically on this. But it comes up every time. Uh-huh. And Granholm said, this is a real problem. And this is going to slow down the transition to renewables. You know, and she's not wrong about that. Uh, on the other hand, if you believe in the rules, this is what Emily and I talked about in our paper. If you believe in the rules, like I do, say, well, you know, they're cheating and we ought to hold them responsible. Well, we should get used to this because this, for me, is just an object lesson of what it, what happens when you declare your policy is an energy transition toward renewables and away from fossil fuels. You have got incredible details to work through. If you want to make batteries, you need to do some mining, okay? But these huge reserves in lithium in Nevada aren't going to mine themselves, and it's a messy process. So you got to permit the mining. You've got to deal with storage. If you're not going to make batteries, you've got to build dams and things like that to store energy to keep power readily available when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing. You've got land use issues. You've got alternative supply issues. We have food shortages. We have high food prices. How much corn do you want to go into animal feed to get beef cattle to market? And how much do you want to go into ethanol? Okay, you've got regulatory barriers. The NEPA is something the green groups have used for a long time to slow down hydrocarbon projects like pipelines. It's also slowing down offshore wind and a number of other things because of regulatory hurdles. So when people talk about the energy transition and then move on to the next topic, you know they're not thinking this through. That's magical thinking. We got to stop the magic and start the empiricism. So just to wrap it up on this, does the investigation mean that existing trade rules are ill-equipped to deal with the threat of climate change? Well, there's either circumvention or there's not. That's what's being alleged. That's something that our trade laws have protected against for a while. Congress can always change them. But circumvention is a bad practice and the laws discourage it. So. I just think there's a bigger issue out there, and it's a major challenge that we got to be honest about. Guys, finally today, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai is talking about Globalization 1.0, saying it was fragile, and then talking about will 2.0 be more resilient. She recently said that we've been living under Globalization 1.0 and argued that we need to shift to an improved Globalization 2.0. Do you guys share that assessment that we're currently in this first iteration, that it's not working and we need to shift to version 2.0? Well, I have a rant, so let me start. Oh, yeah. Let's let's bring it on. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not usually in this mood. But I knew there had to be a rant in here somewhere. This is, for me, some continued incoherence from the government on its trade policy. And, uh, for instance, globalization 1.0 and 2.0 have been used for years thanks to an American economist named Richard Baldwin. But it refers to technology. In fact, Globalization 1.0 was the implementation of steam power in the 1820s, which lowered transport costs. Globalization 2.0 is what we're living in now, where information communication technology lowered coordination costs. But Baldwin's use of those terms portrays globalization as essentially a type of technological progress that affects commercial activities. So steam power lowered transport costs dramatically, and it also allowed for scale production, 
which really changed the way goods were delivered. The information and communication technology boom lowered coordination costs and led to supply networks. So Ambassador Tai is kind of pushing water uphill to try to use these labels that are reasonably well-established to talk about technology to talk about public policy ideas. I also think that she's factually wrong about the current globalization leading to what she calls an erosion of opportunities and wages for average Americans. I just have not seen data that would indicate that's true. And of course, worldwide, this current wave of globalization since the mid-90s has been coincident with the greatest reduction in absolute poverty in human history. So there are good things about this that they never want to talk about. But I think she's stuck in definitional purgatory right at the moment. She wants to talk about the globalization in ways that the rest of the world doesn't. She says our China policy is the Trump phase one, which means we don't have any new ideas. So candidly, I come away, I don't know what they want. I don't know what they're going to do. So Bill may, may be the solution to my problems. Well, that, that was an excellent rant, Scott. Bill, we're an equal opportunity rant program, so you're up. Actually, Scott gave the history lesson that I was going to give, so he saved me that part of the rant, except to say that teaching uh, the whole course rather than doing cameos, I taught Baldwin's book for a while. And one of the things that Baldwin talks about, is, uh, which is just fascinating to me, is unbundlings. He looks at like 20,000 years of history and, and talks to me about, about the first big change was agriculture, where we moved from hunter-gatherers to farmers, which meant instead of going after the food, basically the food came to us. Steam power and the Industrial Revolution involved the separation, basically, of work and consumption. You didn't have to make your clothes at home anymore. The factory made your clothes 50 miles away, and there was actually a railroad that could get it to you. So work and consumption became separate. The unbundling that we are benefiting from or, or losing to, depending on your point of view right now, is the separation of know-how or technology and production. And what people discovered 30 or 40 years ago is that you can separate know-how from production and you can move it around. And what that did was create, in Baldwin's mind, an unbeatable combination. And he uses the terms North and South, which is not really accurate, but North means developed world and South means the developing world. And what he said is basically what being able to move technology means is you can create the combination of Northern technology and Southern labor, and that beats every other combination every time. It'll beat Northern technology on Northern labor because Northern labor is more expensive. It'll beat Southern technology and Southern labor because Southern technology isn't very good. So if you combine the best of the North and the best of the South, meaning low labor costs, what you do in economic terms is create an unbeatable combination. That's the world we live in. And that's a world that isn't going to go away. And one of my frustrations about the left wing of my own party is that they they talk about workers, but they're really only talking about the American workers, which is frustrating. Scott made the point. Policies that I've just described have lifted literally billions of people out of poverty over the last 30 or 40 years. The American problem is those billions are not in the United States. They're all somewhere else. And the biggest number is in China, to the tune of like 600 million people are not poor anymore because of what we've been talking about. At one level, that's a good thing. You know, globally, that's a good thing. But that's not an American thing. And it has come at the expense of American jobs. But it's a little frustrating to see the left focus solely on the American jobs and not on the total global benefit that the things we're talking about have created. 
The other problem, which Scott alluded to, and then I'll stop my rant, is I was at a dinner the other night where the topic was China, but there was somebody from the administration, and I should say not from USTR, so I don't want to pin this on them, but who was talking about their China policy and made some comments that were essentially, China presents a, you know, a new challenge, a big challenge, it raises all kinds of important questions, and we need to sort out what all those questions are. We need to figure out what's in our toolbox and what tools we can use to meet the China challenge. And all I could think of while she was talking was, that is a great speech for February 2021. What have they been doing the last year to answer all those questions? Right. How do they the not know what nothing. the tools in the toolbox are? I, I mean, come on. It's like, how much longer are we going to search for the tools in the toolbox? As it turns out, CSIS Economics Program, Matt Goodman did a, a project a couple of years ago, which we actually I worked on with him, where we laid out what's in the toolbox, you know, and it's a big toolbox. There's a lot of tools, some of which they're using, some of which they're not using, but they're not coming to any conclusions. And I think people are getting frustrated. I think the Hill is frustrated. Senator Sass the other day, who was even starkier than I've been from time to time, basically said that, you know, USTR has been in a coma for the last year and a half. That's unkind, but like a lot of snark, there's a core of truth down there somewhere. Well, here, look, the president has meetings in Washington with leaders from the ASEAN region going on right now. This is a region that's benefited magnificently where living standards really have gone up. It's tangible. You can see it and feel it when you travel there. And they want to trade with the United States. And we seem not to be able to articulate what we'd want out of that relationship or what we might do. And that's frustrating for everybody. And it's it's hard to defend, frankly, at this stage. Well, Trey, guys, let's figure out a way to help them find their toolbox. Bill, maybe you can send them the report that you and Matt Goodman did, that should be a good roadmap for them. Guys, thanks a million for all your insights today. We will be back next week. Same trade time, same trade channel. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.